happening. I wanted to start doing some morning declarations again with you for you, so here we go. Christ in me is more than enough. I create worlds with my words, so I will choose kindness and encouragement to focus eyes up. The world will be different and better because I serve Jesus today. This new series, uh, The Upside Down, will be a journey with Jesus from when he stepped onto the pages of history as an adult, from where he was baptized um, until he was ultimately crucified and then rose again. We're going to look at some of his most significant conversations, some of his most significant encounters, uh, his key teaching moments. We're going to follow him as he was introduced as uh, being, being a teacher uh, for the first time in this world to ultimately going on to become a sacrifice for the world. And the thing that we're going to talk about during this series that might be new, honestly, it might be uh, disturbing, we're going to look at one of the things that is most missed about Jesus' life. It might be the reason that you are confused about the Christian religion. It might be why you're confused about church and how it works, whether you're here or whether you're watching. When you read the Gospels, it really couldn't be any clearer, and yet it still seems to be so frequently forgotten. Here it is. Jesus came to introduce something brand new to the world. He did not come to extend something that was old. He did not come to simply complete the Bible so that we could have both an Old Testament and a New Testament. He didn't come to create Judaism 2.0. He came to bring something brand new to the world, and not just to the world, but for the world. Now, every headliner needs an opening act, someone who gets the crowd warmed up a little bit and maybe builds a little anticipation, gets a little bit of excitement um, from those who are around for the act to come. And Jesus has a warm-up act also. So, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please, from the Jordan River Basin, draped in animal skin, smelling of locust breath, please give a warm welcome and put your hands together for John the Baptist. Yeah. So, John the Baptist steps on the scenes now as his first moment in history, the opening act. For Jesus, and the reason that he's called John the Baptist, it's, it's not his stage name, all right? It's, he's not John the Baptist because he's not John the Presbyterian. As far as we can tell, John is the first person in history to sort of manhandle anyone and baptize them. Baptism at this point in the first century was part of a multifaceted process for a non Jewish person to go through so that they could become Jewish. There was a meal, there were things that you need to learn, things that you needed to study, and then as part of becoming a Jewish person, being part of the covenant, you have to be baptized. But baptism at that point was a ceremonial washing where you decided I'm dying to my Gentileness and I'm coming alive to my Jewishness. But you did this alone. 
No one did this to you or for you. There might have been people around who watched, but you self-administered. And John the Baptist comes to the Jordan River and he actually is physically baptizing people. And that's how he got his nickname, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Now the four gospel accounts walk us through the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke, who opens his account by saying, I have carefully investigated all of these things, and I have created for you a chronological account of the things that happened in our midst, or the things that have been fulfilled among us. Stuff that, stuff that happened here. Luke was writing history, and here is his introduction to Jesus' opening act, John the Baptist. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's the emperor of Rome who came after Caesar Augustus, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, when you get to your Bible and you're reading stuff like that, you arrive at one of these parts, you really hope you're not asked to read it out loud in front of somebody else. This, this is the kind of section that you want to go, yada, 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 just get me to the important parts, okay? But this is extraordinary. And let me tell you why. This is not just history nerdy fun, all right? This is Luke sort of eyeballing any of his ancient skeptics and saying, go ahead, fact check me, all right? This orderly account doesn't begin with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. There is no part in here that says, now once upon a time, Luke is stating what I am about to tell you happened in history. And what he does, he's so meticulous, it's so remarkable, so uncharacteristic for most, most, most of the writing in that time. And when we get into Luke, there is just so much detail that happens time after time after time. He's a historian's dream. And so what he says here is, let me start at the macro level. Okay, so imagine um, you got your Google Earth. You know, just zoom it out, all right? Emperor of Rome. And then we go to the, 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 the governor of Judea and Galilee. And then uh, the sub-governors of the province. And then the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem. Are you all zooming in with me? Have you heard of any of these guys? You know what period of time we're talking about. And all the first century audiences going, yes, Luke, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know when that is. Even people who don't believe in Jesus, uh, they, they, when they read this, they say this is some amazing stuff historically to come across to locate things. So Luke goes on. He goes, the, the, the word of God came to John. This is John the Baptist, not John who wrote the gospel of John. It came to him in uh, the, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. This wasn't a dozen people. Remember Luke had interviewed people and he had researched this. So he said, beaucoup de personnes et ici, many people. There, okay? And they came from the capital city and from the surrounding region as well. So thousands of people are going over to the middle of nowhere. 
it's really difficult to get to if you're starting in Jerusalem. So if you're coming from Jerusalem, you would have to get up before sunrise. You would have to walk the whole day. You'd arrive after sunset. And then the next day, you just got to try and hope that you can look around and find him. This is not a convenient trip. There's no food trucks set up and waiting. On the banks of the River Jordan, John the Baptist begins to preach and teach, and thousands of people came. And this, this was a problem. It's a problem because every once in a while in Judea or in Galilee, someone would rise up and they would appear like some kind of wannabe Messiah. And the Jewish leaders would have to calm everybody back down, stop it before an erection, an insurrection, uh, and Rome would, uh, would have to get involved, and if Rome gets involved, it's very bloody, and so they wanted to avoid that. And thanks to King Herod and his son, things had been going pretty smoothly for the last number of years. Suddenly now, on the banks of the Jordan River, there's this new guy, and he is saying all kinds of things. He's preaching all kinds of things, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people show up to listen to him. But it wasn't just the sermons that disturbed the temple leaders. Because they showed up, in verse 6, it's, verse six it says, confessing their sins. Stop right there for a second. This was unheard of. And when we hear that way off into the future, way off into the 21st century, it doesn't really stand out to us at all. We just sort of breeze on by that too. But Jewish people in the first century, and for all of the centuries preceding the first century, had a very sophisticated system for how you confessed your sins. There was a way that you did this. There was an order of things. And if you lived in the vicinity, you went to the temple in Jerusalem. You brought a sacrifice there, and there were certain sacrifices for certain things. And there were different sacrifices for different sins, and then you'd say things to the priests. And if you didn't live close to Jerusalem, well, then you went to your local synagogue, but you still found somebody in charge. You found somebody official. You found somebody certified by the temple, someone with temple system authority. You confess your sin, and then they decided what you would have to do to be forgiven. They told you what hoops that you'd have to jump through, just like many religions still do today. So there is this guy who is an uncertified, non-official nobody out in the middle of nowhere, and people are confessing their sins to him. He's acting like a walking, talking temple. Just who is this guy? But it wasn't that they were just confessing sins. It was the thing that got him his nickname that was most disturbing of all. Not only were they confessing their sins, but they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And now, if you're going to be baptized in the context of first century baptism, you have to have permission. You couldn't just show up and be baptized. Well, how do we know if you're okay? How do we know if you're qualified? But more than that, the people that were gathering were Jewish people. Jewish people don't need to be baptized. You get baptized as part of a process to become Jewish. 
They were born Jewish. They were already part of the covenant of Abraham. And so this is so disruptive. None of this had been approved by the high priest. There's no authority. There's no sign of education. There's no backing. There's no explanation. There's no permission. There's no precedent. Just a wild-eyed, crazy preacher in the middle of nowhere, down by the river. And the whole countryside was flocking to hear him. And John tells us, the, the other John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John the Apostle says that John the Baptist, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light. We're jumping in in the middle of a passage because when John the gospel writer referred to Jesus in the way of an explanation about who he is, John's doing this from later in life. And he's looking back on everything that he's seen, everything that he's experienced, and he's trying to put the pieces together for himself and to explain it to people who are coming. He's trying to provide an explanation uh, and an insight to the story and to who Jesus is. So John was trying to explain how his friend with a, with a body was God. And that's hard to do. So light is the common imagery utilized. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. And John, John the Baptist, testified concerning him saying, um, this is the one. He's talking about Jesus who hadn't shown up yet. I spoke about, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes before me has surpassed me because he was before me. So anyone listening says, what? John, you're, you're going to need to back it up a little bit because he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. What does that even mean? So he's just, I, I'm trying to say that I showed up first, but, but then I found out who he was. And I realized that he'd already been here. You haven't seen him yet, but when you do, oh my goodness, just get ready. Just get ready. And then here's the foreshadowing. Just a little touch of it right here. John the Gospel writer describes John the Baptist's message in verse 17. He says it like this, for the law was given through Moses. And here comes the tension. Here comes the foreshadowing of the tension that will follow Jesus throughout his entire ministry. The law was given through Moses. And as you might very well know, the law was everything. To this day, many Jews, to them the law is everything. The law was housed in the temple, and they put it in the temple in the holy of holies. It's a place where only the high priest could enter, and he could only enter it once a year. And tradition tells us that they tied a rope around his ankle in case he died when he was in there, so that they could pull him out because nobody's going in there. So in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, that's where they keep it. In the Holy of Holies, there is what's left of the Ark of the Covenant. And by this time in history, there's probably next to nothing left of the Ark of the Covenant. Sorry about that, Indiana Jones. Uh, some semblance of the word, some semblance of the text, the Torah, the law is there. But to them, the law was everything. The temple was everything. Moses was everything. Moses was the lawgiver. Rabbis could comment on Moses, but you couldn't create new laws. Rabbis could illustrate the law, but you couldn't create new laws. You could talk about it, but you did not mess with it. 
The Jewish law governed every facet of Jewish life in the first century, and so Jews died to protect the Torah. Jews died to protect the temple. And John, the gospel writer, looks back on this incident with John the Baptist at the riverbank, and he says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This was a contrast. Something new was in the works. This is not an and. This is an instead of. Verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Here's what happened. There is a big disturbance. All the stuff is going down at the Jordan River. Nobody's shopping at the temple anymore because people are all shopping down at the new mall at the Jordan River. So the people in the temple are thinking, hey, what's going on? And the temple leaders, they get nervous. So the high priests and the uppity-ups call in the underlings and they send them on the fact-finding field trip because it's a long way to the Jordan River. So we want you to go down to the Jordan River. We want you to find out what's going on. Do a report. Get an appointment. Take an interview. Find out who this guy is. We don't want to go, frankly, because it's a long way. And if we show up, well, we're kind of a big deal, all right? And if we show up, we don't want him to get any extra uh, fame because of our fame. In verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So John knows what they're going to ask. He can feel it, and they want to know, who are you, and by whose authority are you doing whatever it is that you're doing down here? Are you another wannabe pretend Messiah? And these happen every once in a while, and we need to kind of regulate that, and you need to come to Jerusalem if that's what you want to do, and you need to go through us, fill out the paperwork, we'll stamp stuff. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And the reason they asked that is because in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Malachi, the prophet, the, the, Malachi is the last prophet, but in Malachi, um, he says, before God does this next big thing, before Messiah comes, there will be a prophet that comes in the spirit of Elijah. So if you're not the Messiah... Are you the guy that comes before the Messiah? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. No. Are you the prophet? Now, Moses and the Qumran community had taught that there would be a, uh, a great prophet that would come to prepare the people before God did something great. He answers, no. So finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Who, what do you say about yourself? Come on, John. Help a brother out, okay? We can't go back to our bosses and tell them this is who he is not, right? We need to know who you are. We need to know who is giving the authority for this. Where did you get these uh, unsettling, unconventional ideas of yours? Come on, John. You can't let people confess sins down at the river. We confess sin up on the hill, up 
on the temple mount in the temple, and you're acting right now like a portable temple. What's going on here? Who are you? And then verse 23, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. He said, I am the voice. I'm just the voice. I'm not the guy. I'm not the one. I'm just a voice of one calling in the wilderness. That's why I'm not up at the temple. And I'm calling, make straight the way of the Lord. Get ready. Get ready. God is about to do his next big thing. I'm just the warm-up act. I'm just called in to gather the people and to let them know to get ready. And those who have pure hearts and those who have repented of their sin, they are going to recognize what he's up to. That's why I'm here. And yes, I'm allowing people to confess their sins. Heads up. Something greater than the temple is about to arrive. Verse 24. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, and why do you uh, baptize if you are not um, the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John kind of dodges the question when he says, I baptize with water. But among you stands one that you do not know, one you do not recognize. So look around. If you think that this is a big deal, if you think that I'm a big deal, just wait. You've got no idea who was coming. 27, he is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I'm a nobody. The crowd here, they, they might make you think that I'm a somebody, but I'm not. Compared to who is coming, I'm a nobody. Well, that's not much of an answer. So these guys head back up to Jerusalem. They say, well, we know who he's not. Not sure who he is. So the high priest and his guys are kind of like, oh, I can't believe this. Okay, I guess we're going to have to go down there ourselves. Really bad idea for them to do that. So they get up way early in the morning. No doubt they roll out in their stretched SUVs with the heavily tinted windows, right? They are uh, got to be a well-loaded up caravan to head down the road. Probably lots of food and tents and minions and gear and robes, so many robes. And these are the guys that the people have so much respect for. I mean, the high priest, come on. This is the one who gets to go into the Holy of Holies. These are the guys that all the kids have their trading cards. And they say, did you get an anise? Yeah, I got a Caiaphas. <laughs> when, when, when they arrive, the, the, the people all just kind of back away, right? They give them space. These are the people that when you went to the temple, they would take the grain or they would take your goat and, and, and they would direct you through the entire system, the entire religious system so that you could deal with God. These are, these are the ones that you would point out to your kids. You say, oh, over there, did you see who that was? Do you see what he's doing back there? Do you see so-and-so? Did you see him? These are the perfect people. They look good. They smell good. They dress well. All their clothes come from holiness are us. They keep the law. If God was going to do something in this world, these would be the first people to be notified. And so they show up. 
They arrive, and they don't fade into the background at all. So John's up there doing his thing, right? He's teaching, and he's baptizing, and then he looks up on the hill, and there they come, and they're sort of just snaking down the pathways down the hill. The people are stirring, right? They're talking, they're murmuring. They've never even seen these guys leave Jerusalem before, and here they are to see John. The value of the tickets that they had just went way up. These new arrivals are raising John's profile. They came to John. John didn't have to go to them. What a big day. And so the crowd parts, and they make their way towards John. Just imagine, there's John with his disheveled hair and his animal skin clothes, smelling like he's lived outdoors his entire life. And here comes the most sophisticated, buttoned-up, oil-haired group of people in the entire country. And as they get closer, but before they are close enough to have a private conversation, this is what happened. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, out loud, in front of everyone, you brood of vipers! Now, for those of you who are a little bit unsure about Middle Eastern culture, this is not a compliment. <laughs> the whole crowd just hushes, right? Oh, that was unexpected. Nobody talks to these guys like that. These are the holiest people. These people are basically paid to be good. It's like their full-time job. He says, who warned you? Everybody already gathered at the Jordan River was coming to repent of their sins and to be baptized. And all of a sudden, it looks like they are coming to be baptized to repent of their sins. But John knows better. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Something's coming. You think I'm a big deal? No way. What is going to come is going to blow your mind. And so he says to them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is also a dig, also not a compliment. And a murmur ripples through the crowd again. John the Baptist just told the holiest men in the whole country, repent of your sin. And he says, don't tell me about some sort of magic prayer that you made in the privacy of your own home. I want to see fruit. I want to see evidence. These were the law keepers, and John is telling everybody that they are the law breakers. So here's the tension, the friction. This is all part of the story of Jesus of Nazareth throughout his public ministry. John the Baptist was given everybody a heads up. The days of compassionless loophole religion coming to an end. It's a very short conversation. They turned around and left. And then it happened. The moment the nation had been waiting for. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. No caravan, no entourage. He saw Jesus coming toward him. So let's just pause in this moment. In this moment, there is Jesus who knows who he is. 
and there is John the Baptist who knows who he is. This is the hinge. This is the transition. This is an encounter that will ultimately change the world. This is the moment when Jesus of Nazareth stepped into history as an adult. God in a body. And in this moment, things begin to change and they would never, ever go back to what they once were. So we're here today and there's people all over the world gathering today in his name. And this is the moment that it began. Just think about how fragile this moment is. There are two men in a world where, where people's lives could be snuffed out with no accountability. The whole thing hangs in the balance with just these two men. And all eyes are on John the Baptist. And they've been on him for a while. And he says, look. Look. Not believe. Not imagine. Not consider. Not pretend. Not think about this. Not read this. Not check your brain at the door. John the Baptist invites his audience, and I think the way that it's recorded, he he is inviting us also to look. The Lamb of God. And for those who had grown up every Saturday in Saturday school, they knew the story. They remembered that story. The one that they were taught as children about how Abraham was about to sacrifice his own son, and then God provided a lamb. And John says, look, the lamb of God, the lamb that comes from God, the lamb that God provided. Look, there's the lamb of God who takes away, who lifts up and carries off. These people understood the point of providing the lamb, the lamb that lifts up and carries off The sin. Hold on just a second, John. This is moving, this whole thing's just, whoa, moving too fast. You were baptizing, that's weird. Um, And we were confessing our sins, and we we were so many miles from, from Jerusalem and the temple, and that's weird. And now you're saying that God provided a lamb. And he, and he didn't provide the lamb at the altar in the temple the way it's always supposed to go down. He's provided a lamb way out here in the middle of nowhere to a whole bunch of nobodies? This is moving too fast. This whole thing is just way too new. But that was nothing compared to what came next. And if their, uh, all of their categories hadn't been blown yet, this was the tipping point. This is the pardon me moment. This is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Hold it, hold it, hold it, John. What? God's going to forgive the sin of the world? Even non-Jewish sin? Like the sin of our enemies? Roman sin? John, why, why would he do that? 
John, John, you're Jewish, right? Our entire religious system is, is designed to keep us separated from the world. We don't eat their food. We don't wear their clothes. We don't marry their daughters, and they, their sons can't marry our daughters. We don't go into their houses. They can't come into our homes. And the temple, there's just a little itty-bitty place for them that they are allowed to go into, and the rest of it is designed just for Jewish people. Our whole history is marked by a struggle against the other nations. Anytime that there are foreigners on our land, we just assume that we are under the judgment of God. And if God were for us, he would throw them out of our land. We're waiting for a Messiah who is like Joshua, who is like Yeshua who's going to come and expel the enemy. Our whole frame of reference is us versus them. God is for us. He is not for them. And now you're telling us that God has provided a lamb to take away the sin of the whole world? That instead of somehow being against, somehow we're supposed to believe that God is for them? This was no little tension to unleash on these people. And this is the tension that created so much conflict. And as we're going to see, this is the tension that continues to create conflict for some of us. Jesus was the bridge between the old and the new covenants. Jesus was the bridge between two value systems. Jesus was the bridge between two different sets of laws and commandments. Jesus was the bridge between two different worldviews. And that God, long before Moses had promised Abraham that he would become a family, that would become a nation, and through that nation, the entire world would be blessed. But through the centuries that ensued, the nation of Israel somehow lost sight of the fact that they were not the end that they were simply a temporary means to a glorious worldwide end. They were God's chosen people, but they were God's chosen people as if they were a cocoon. And from that cocoon, there would be birth and life and light to the whole world. And John the Baptist's point was to prepare and to help them think back to remember we are a means to an end. We are blessed to be a blessing. And the good news is that the end has come, that God is finally going to do that thing that we have been praying for and looking forward to. Jesus was the bridge between the old and the new covenants. He was born under one to introduce the other. He was born under one covenant to introduce and then to fulfill and thereby to replace the one. The first covenant was between God and a nation. It was instituted at Mount Sinai. The Sinai covenant, God brought Moses up to the top, and God gave Moses all the commandments. The people, they were too scared to deal directly with God, and so God accommodated them by dealing through Moses. God gave Moses the 600 plus commands and said, this is how you're going to operate 
as a nation. This will be your civil law as I prepare them for what, will for what I will ultimately do through the world. Because I will ultimately establish a new covenant, not with the nation, but with all the world. But you know this from personal experience. Transitions are hard, aren't they? Transitions are stressful. The old ways die hard. And those who profit most from the status quo are least inclined to let it go. Isn't that true? When Jesus showed up, this, this is difficult for some of us because of how we were raised. When Jesus showed up, the temple system was very wealthy and very powerful. And according to Jesus, it was totally from top to bottom corrupt. Jesus never had one good thing to say about the temple and the temple system throughout his entire ministry. And this is difficult for those of us who grew up in church. We remember the story, but we forget so many of the details. We know that God wanted direct relationship with his people, but they were scared. And they wanted to go through Moses. And so God accommodated we know that God established the sacrificial system to organize the religious system so that it was similar to the rest of their neighbors, to the rest of the known world, so that it would be easier for them to transition. Similar, but with some very key differences. He accommodated for a temple. He didn't want that either. But he laid out the sacrificial system. He accommodated for a king. He didn't want that either. He established the Ark of the Covenant and the, and the Tent of Meeting or the, the Tabernacle. All of these things that were to remind Israel that they were his special people. But when Jesus showed up, it was so corrupt. He had nothing good to say about it. And that very system would ultimately join forces with the kingdoms of this world, Rome, and crucify him. But what was designed to be an end was only the beginning of something brand new. Jesus came to establish three new things. And this is basically what we're going to talk about for the next weeks. Jesus came to establish first a brand new covenant. A brand new arrangement between God and humanity. A brand new covenant between God and you. He came to replace the old with a new one. The Bible is God's word, but every word is not for everybody equally. And when we think it is, we create unnecessary confusion. If you think it is, that might be the reason that you have left the Christian faith. Or that you struggle with the Christian faith. If you left the Christian faith for anything in the first half of your Bible, I think that you might have left the faith unnecessarily. So stick around. We're going to talk about that. We're going to look more into that. The second thing that Jesus came to establish was a new command. And this is a huge deal. It's another thing that, when, uh, that we're going to delve into as we go along. And for us 21st century Bible uh, readers, we miss this. You know, we just kind of just zip over it again. It doesn't really stand out. But this is an enormous issue and a major adjustment 
to the first century world. Why? Because there was only one law giver. And that was Moses. Everybody Jewish knew that. And Jesus kept setting himself up against Moses. And it, it made people keep asking him, who do you think you are? Who, who do you think you are? Because Moses said, and Moses said, and, and Moses said, and then in Jesus, his most famous sermon, Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. And they're going, yeah, we heard it said. We heard it said because that's what Moses said. And who are you to set yourself up against Moses? There's only one lawgiver. But Jesus would come along and he would take 600 plus commands and he would condense them down to two. And then in his final act, he reduced it down to one. A single command. A single commandment that would serve as a unifying ethic for his brand new movement, the church. So Jesus makes his way down to the water and he says, John, my friend, please baptize me. And John says, are you kidding? I just told all these people who you are and that you're coming and that I'm not even worthy to undo your sandals. I can't baptize you. I think Jesus smiles. He puts his hand on John's shoulder and he says, John, you must do this. Because these people must know that I am willing to identify with the new that's coming. The new that, well, that you've introduced. That we together are introducing something new. So I'm part of you. Just like you're part of me. So baptize me, my friend. And he did. So it began. God's promise to Abraham could finally be fulfilled through a man who came as a lamb to take away the sin of the world. Your sin. My sin. But before we get to that, there's sermons to preach. There's stories to tell. There's diseases to heal. Mouths to feed. And there are tables to topple. Why did Jesus do all of that? He did all of that so that his audience would know with certainty. So that we could know with certainty that God was up to something new for you, for me, for the world. Kind Father, thanks. Thanks for this story. Continue to speak to us, I pray. Holy Spirit, continue to make things clear to us and to set us free to follow the commands of Jesus, to love one another, just like you have loved us. It's hard to figure out how to do a lot of the time. And more than hard to figure out, it's hard to do. Because frankly, there's all kinds of times that I don't want to do that. And so I ask that you would be kind to me and that you would be gracious to me and that you would give me your spirit in increasing measure that would aid me in becoming more like you. Transform my heart. Transform my mind. Set me free to live and to love as you did. Thanks. In Jesus' name.
Amen.